This is the Canopy Life Podcast. My name is Evan Chastine, and I am here with Christy Gordy, the founder of Canopy Life. Canopy Life exists to give vulnerable children the heart, home, mindset, and skills they need to become godly, innovative leaders and entrepreneurs. Christy, in this episode, uh, I realize we're on episode 19. Today's episode 19 of the Canopy Life Podcast. Um, it goes fast when you're having fun. It does. This is uh, a very fun thing that we've been able to, to do in this crazy uh, period of time. So what I what you mentioned, I think, that we haven't done yet is talked about the backstory of Canopy Life. Like, right. how did it come to be? Well, why did it come to be? What's your story? How did it intersect with this? Uh, and yeah, so I don't know the question to ask. What's the backstory? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm glad we're getting around to it because a lot of people have joined the Canopy Story this year. You know, when we started, so much of the U.S., especially Canopy Life family, were my friends and family and people who'd kind of been following the journey for a while. So I'm excited we get to share it. Um, For me, the story starts a long time ago. I've always had a heart for the world. Um, I went on a lot of mission trips in high school, college. And in college, I specifically felt like I was supposed to devote my focus to the nations outside of the U.S. Um, Specifically, I thought I was going to be going to Southeast Asia. That was one of the trips I had taken in college that was the most uh, impactful for me. Mm -hmm. And I was excited to do that. And a couple things happened right at the end of college. I Uh, ended up moving back home to help my family through some times. And so I didn't get to step into international work as quickly as I thought. And just to be clear, the work, I always knew it was going to be missional. There's a lot of different kinds of international work. There's humanitarian, there's um, development. And I had been introduced to doing work internationally through a ministry perspective. So I knew that was the angle that felt the most natural for me. Uh, But a few years after college, I just sensed that the Lord wanted me to get out there, to go somewhere. And the door that he opened was in 2003, ended up being a six-month trip to Kenya. And I remember thinking when that door opened, what? Like Africa did not exist on my radar. Yeah. And I had the first thought that now I kind of giggle when people want to go to Kenya and I ask them what they think and they think like dust and bugs and whatever, which is so not what Kenya is. I literally see more cockroaches in my front yard than I've ever seen bugs in any of my trips to Kenya, which is just so funny. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I remember just being like, what, Africa? Like, and it was kind of a weird period of time. It's like long enough where you have to quit your job, mm-hmm. but not so long that you feel like you don't have to start immediately looking you know, halfway through the trip for a job for when you get home. And was it the longest I, international trip that you had done yep. up to that point? Okay. Yeah. I had only done were any like, of them close to six months. Nowhere near. Nowhere okay. near. Hey, we're talking less than a month for all of the previous gotcha. trips. Most okay. of them 10 day, 10 to 14 day trips. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I walked through that door. It was with the missions uh, organization up in North Georgia that sends tons of college and high school and some post-college students uh, to on, on mission around the world. And I ended up living in the slum of Kibera for six months. It's the largest slum in East Africa. I believe it's still the second largest slum in the world, but I might be wrong about that. It might just be the second largest in Africa. Um, and my little team and I just did work for those six months. And a lot of things happened during that time 
for me. But the biggest thing was that I just fell in love with Kenya. When you say slum, what do you mean by slum? So I have an image in my head that I think is more influenced uh, by Hollywood than my actual experience in a slum. Mm. Is that a is that an accurate portrayal of uh, like it, what everybody's picturing in their head if they haven't been to a it slum? Probably is, is. It's like yeah, yeah. It probably is. Like if you have seen Slumdog Millionaire, even mm-hmm. though that is a slum in India, it's very similar. It's a lot okay. of some houses built out of cement and that have running water, but most houses built out of aluminum or constructed by hand. Um, a lot of people living in a very small amount of space with no, uh, with very limited um, infrastructure for mm. water or sewage and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of, of enterprise and even education that happens within the slum. There's entire little communities and businesses that are springing up. So it's not quite as like just residential as some people may think, um, but it is a lot of people living in a very tight uh, space that lacks infrastructure. Gotcha. And is it defined uh, by by poverty or the amount of people without uh, access to uh, an infrastructure that gives them uh, that's a, a great question. Or, that okay. is a really great question. I actually don't know the official answer to that. I think it's a combination of the two. Okay. But there are slums that are very small that we would probably, you know, it might be a couple hundred people living on a street in a different gotcha, part gotcha. of a town. So it's not just defined by uh, the number of people. Okay. But it is connected to the gathering. So I'd have to look that up to know okay. exactly what defines a slum. Um, Interesting. Sorry, I got us off topic yeah, there. So no, you visited, I love your questions. Uh, They're amazing. <laughs> you visited the slum uh, and there were a lot of interesting uh, experiences that you had. And I don't know if interesting was the right word or the word. No, it was just very there. impactful. I fell okay. in love with Kenya and their potential. It's the one. It's truly one of the most hospitable countries I've ever um ever met and I think my heart just slid in so naturally a big portion of that is because I'm such a big communicator I use words to share my thoughts ideas my heart and since English is a primary language there was just very much Mm. less of a barrier I just felt like I could be myself there and that that was received and there's so much potential um so I came back that was in for six months in 2003 and I just I knew I was supposed to do something there but didn't know what I came back to Atlanta where my family lived and I ended up getting a job with a nonprofit that was just starting um, Mm -hmm. in Atlanta that worked with women in, in crisis and worked for them for several years. Little did I know that was my little mini institute and how to get a nonprofit off the ground. Nice. It was was your degree in nonprofits. Right. (laughs) Right. That's awesome. So uh, I learned a lot from that season. And then again, in 06, I just felt like the Lord was saying, Hey, like get, you need to get back to Africa. And the door that God opened was with an organization, again, an organization that had literally just opened its doors called the 410 Bridge. And I remember um, I met them at the Passion Conference in 2007, January of 2007. I was running mm-hmm. the retail space. So I was on like the leadership team for that conference and was running the retail space. And I had like a 15 minute break. So I wandered over to the global area uh, of the conference and 410 had a little booth. I don't even think they were called 410 Bridge at that point, but they were looking for college students to send to Kenya. And nice. I remember going back to my hotel room at the Omni and and e- emailing them immediately saying, I want to go work in Africa, specifically Kenya. You are only working in Kenya right now. Can we talk? Like, can you give us a job? 
So months and months later, uh, through this interview process, they made it clear that they don't send people on long-term mission to Kenya <laughs> and that they were had a f- different focus on community development and they weren't even really sure what they were doing just yet. But they wanted to launch a children's choir of Kenyan kids that would travel the U.S. and mm-hmm. they needed someone to be that tour leader. And I was late 20s at that point and single and had availability, but I was like, I'm not really a kid person. Like, what do I, I don't know. <laughs> but I just kept thinking, I only want to work in Kenya. So if this gets me in the door with yeah. an organization that's also only working in Kenya, which was pretty rare at that point, mm. like so many organizations worked in multiple countries. I didn't want to start with an organization that may send me somewhere else. Right. So I, I was like, if this gets me in a door to the my foot in the door to an organization that's working in the only place I want to go, then it's worth it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking a combo kind of contract position to launch their first choir tour and plan their first fundraiser, which ended up being like 2,700 people at North Point Community Church in Atlanta. And Jeff Foxworthy did his first ever like charitable, <laughs> uh, charitable stage, yeah. which had nothing to do with me, but I was the one like having to like coordinate it which was incredibly out of my comfort zone and sure um but at the end of that season we did our first tour it was a nightmare <laughs> we i we i mean we had no idea the legal the legal hoops you have to jump through to get kids out of mm. a country to come visit the <clears throat> just how uh you mean you can't just book a flight and be like, no. hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just, we learned a lot, right? And uh, yeah. and I, even then I had cultural, I've been to Kenya for long periods of time, but I'd never experienced the cultural uh, challenges of Kenyans coming to the U.S. And um, oh, so it ended up being a very short tour because of all those delays around getting visas and documentation and everything the kids needed. Uh, it was about four weeks long and it, I'm, I, we couldn't have made it another day. <laughs> I mean, because it just took every, we were learning at a rapid pace every sure. single day, but it was such a godsend because number one, I realized I love this. I love working with these kids. Hmm. I love seeing their worldview change in a, in a one afternoon experience that we mm-hmm. can take them on. I love seeing a church's worldview change because it's like taking the whole church on a mission trip when this choir would pull up and, um, and that cross pollination of God's graces when the two cultures would come together and we'd see God through each other's eyes. Like it was so powerful. And I found myself at the end of that month and after that big event begging for the job, please don't give this to anyone else. Let me do this. And yeah. Um, and so uh, I ended up doing that for four or five years. And I should probably back up just a little bit. So part of my clue that God wanted me to get back to Africa was after a, it was a Bible study, a really large singles Bible study in Atlanta that was led by Louis Giglio at the time. And um, he, um, he did, he actually, he had trans- transitioned out and come back for just a summer occurrence in the summer of 06. And he did a whole night talking about James, uh, the passage in James that talks about how true religion is to help widows and orphans. And that night I literally, I just literally couldn't sleep. I was in this women's ministry um, and I knew my time there was coming near an end. And I literally sat up thinking about Kenya all night long. And I ended Mm -hmm. up drawing this picture in my journal of uh, a school that felt like a home that had American interns and there was a way for widows to get involved and um, it w- I just, it was very, very clear. 
And I thought it was just a picture. God regularly gives me these big fantastical dreams just to get me to turn my head a little bit, like to catch Mm. my attention. And so that's what I thought that was. I put it in my journal, but I knew that it was a clue that I was supposed to turn my head back to Africa. Right. So, uh, and that's how I got the job with the 410 bridge and leading the choir and set me on that path. So at that time, when I started with the choir, I still wasn't thinking anything about that vision, about a school or a home or something in Africa. I just thought that that was what God used, the flashing light to get me to turn my head. But about a year and a half into the choir tour process, we we had had a couple of choirs on the road at that point. We ended up traveling as a whole for about six months a year. And I ended up okay. doing that for five years. So six months on the That's road. around the U.S. Around the U.S. Okay. Uh, spent a lot of our summers in the South east panhandle because we had regular um performances at a camp because uh, jeff foxworthy was your yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well and also that's where you and i met was when you were working yeah. at big stuff camp and we yeah. had weekly worship leading performances. and really that's what i loved about the choir too is that they were leading worship it wasn't performance oriented and we traveled mm-hmm. churches all over the u.s but mostly on the east coast and southeast a couple of performances on the west coast and we get out to Texas as far as west as Texas pretty regularly. So we were on the road all the time, staying in homes, watching these kids' lives change dramatically. And uh, about, I think it was the, um, the summer of 08, I, I will never forget it. I, we were in Panama City waiting for one of our choir performances at the camp in that area. And we were in these apartments we had rented there for the summer. And two of our boys in the choir got into a fist fight over a piece of pizza. Hmm. And it was just one of those things where I don't know that an American will ever really understand, but they were both former street kids and something about the afternoon had triggered their internal survival instincts. Like it was their seventh piece of pizza. Like they were, it would, there was not scarcity Hmm. involved, uh, but something triggered that inner trauma and they got into a fight. And I had this amazing intern uh, that summer who was just so destroyed. He felt like we were making such progress with the kids. And that instance had really, he was tired. It crushed him. And so mm-hmm. I literally put him in my RAV4 and we drove over to the Sonic drive-in and I got him a cherry limeade slushy. And we were sitting in my car just trying to like process and mm-hmm. kind of get over it. And he looked at me and he said, something has got to change. And I don't know how many people have had a moment like this, but like it what was delivered to me in that moment was so much more than those words. And it wasn't him talking. It was just the Lord uh, saying, not something, someone has to change this. And I wasn't even Mm. sure what this was. What is it I'm trying to change? (laughs) Is it the trauma? Is it the worldview? Is it uh, the look at, you know, the hopelessness that's connected to um, survival instinct? I don't, I wasn't really sure, but I knew it was me. I could have fallen out of my vehicle onto the parking lot of the Sonic uh, drive through, it hit me so hard that I knew mm. this was me. And that's the moment I knew that that thing I had drawn in my journal a few years before was real. And from that moment forward, I started asking God, okay, who leads this? It did, I still didn't think it was me. <laughs> I thought I was just supposed to get the right people and the right idea in the room. Who leads this? How do we make it happen? And for the next few years, that idea really developed under the 410 Bridge. And our we were calling it the Jiraja Leadership Academy because it was the Jiraja Children's Choir. Yeah. I very much thought it was associated with where we would pull kids from the choir and they'd go back afterwards. 410 had such a great 
a phenomenal model um, to do community development. So I knew I'd be helping rural kids in poverty and, um, and we could work within their infrastructure and within their church network. And, um, and still I kept praying, God, who does this, who leads this? And uh, Abu and Grace, who are the Kenyans who traveled with me most of those time, most of those years, uh, Grace would always say, it is you. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not me. It's not me. I've got other things. I'm, I've got other things I'm going to do with my life. And you know, just how, I don't know if anyone's ever um, had an idea that just worn them down or had a calling that just eventually warmed, wore them down. But eventually mm-hmm. I realized it wasn't going to happen unless I did it and that it needed to happen. And that was over the course of years and years, dying to kind of other things that I thought I might want to go out and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and even within this process, since the school started, it's, it's a process of, oh, I thought I was going to get around to doing this at some point in my life. And not that there's ever uh, no chance that other things will happen, but there's always a little uh, realization when you say yes to something, you're saying no to other things. Mm. And so there's been a lot of series of that, but especially in that years that I was coming to grips with the fact that it was me that needed to go do this. There's a lot of fear of my own inadequacy that I had to die to, fear of, you know, how it was going to get done, my need for control, all those things. And then eventually uh, in 2011, um, so this was years of traveling with the choir, deepening this dream, talking to 410 Bridge about starting the school, which they seemed really excited about. Actually, we weren't sure at that time if it was a school or orphanage. We just knew we wanted to recreate in a longer term scenario, the experiences we were seeing the kids in the choir have. Just nurturing environments where Jesus has spoken to them, broadening their worldview, was just changing their confidence. It was healing some of their trauma. Yeah, it was. They would stay they, here for six months and tour and then go back to Kenya to their communities. But there was, for, uh, did 410 have something set up there for them to go back to? They would go back to boarding schools. They'd often okay. receive sponsorships when they're here and go back to more, like, in, I see. in that they would have more stable food security and then better education. Gotcha. Um, and they would, of course, still be connected to their communities, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the holistic experience or the safe environment that they were experiencing here. Mm-hmm. And we often felt like some of the deeper things that Abu and Grace and I wanted to tackle uh, we just couldn't do in a six month tour and sure, we wanted to sure. see what would happen if we created this kind of nurturing, creative, spiritual environment for them over the course of years, mm-hmm. not just. So we weren't sure at the time that that was a school. We thought it might be an orphanage and we just kept praying and leaning in. Of course, we were so busy with choir tour. I mean, you just don't even breathe. You don't get days off. You know, mm-hmm. we were always busy. Um, but in 2011, Kenya denied travel documents to the kids we every year we would face some amount of challenges and delays and it's not a clean cut structure the way it is here it's very um it relies on the person who's guiding you through the passport and visa experience and so it's very different from year to year Mm -hmm. Uh, but always challenges but in 2011 uh they were never permitted so both the tours were canceled and Mm. um and we were looking ahead to 2012 and it didn't look like we knew how we could get through to get 2012 tours going either. So we kind of, the choir hit pause for a little bit. Yeah. And at that point, the idea around the Duraja Leadership Academy was starting to really become more clear. We had raised a little bit of money for the research and development for it. And so we took that pause and I moved to Kenya for most of 2012 and Abu and Grace and I would just, we just did the R and D for this idea. And a lot of mm. it involved prayer. It was, God, what, what is this? We mostly have feelings of what you want us to accomplish, but what is the real problem? What are you trying to help us do? And I came back at the end of that year 
Um, and we proposed to the choir board that we wanted to start a school and um, they loved the idea. They thought that was a, a boarding school is a great environment where kids still have connection to home, but you get them for nine months a year and can create residential environments for them. And, um, and we just continued to lean in. The choir had restarted at that point with children out of Ugandan villages, and I was no longer in charge of it. It was being taken over uh, and run by this amazing other couple. Mm -hmm. So I was free to focus on it, but I had to do some fundraising uh, do some, uh, a lot of events. Uh, so I became kind of part-time event planner for 410 Bridge. And the hope was that by the end of 2013, we'd start raising money for this school. And this is one of the most critical parts. I just have always looked back with gratitude. Um, you know, it just never seemed to be the right time to start raising money for the school. Um, mm -hmm. And 410 Bridge had all of their development and things going, and we had some amazing events going that year. And, um, and I think the executive director who has always been a, a mentor for me, he, he and I both came to the conclusion at the end of 2013, like, I just don't know that these visions align anymore. It's a different model. It's still the hope of changing lives in Kenya, but it's a very different model. Uh, the school idea versus what Fort Tambridge was doing. There's a lot of uh, different and varying needs within de community development work and the amount of capital and energy that would need to be put into starting a school was just very separate. It was just a separate uh, rhythm than mm -hmm. what was going on. And I, I was beginning to get the feeling that I needed to step out and do this school on my own, even though I was terrified. Um, I mostly also didn't want to offend these people that had been helping me nurture this dream for years or abandon them from the work that I was helping them do. And it was just one of those God moments where I walked into Kurt's office and together we almost in unison said, this needs to be its own thing. And I think we were both equally excited, terrified and, <laughs> and scared. So at the end of 2013, we threw our first um, fundraiser for, for this, uh, the school that became Canopy Life Academy. And we launched out on our own. The most beautiful part about that relationship with 410 Bridge is that they helped launch Canopy Life. I mean, Canopy Life oh, cool. would not be here. They were our 501c3 covering for the first year and a half until we got our own registration. They were our covering on the Kenya side for even longer until we got our NGO registration there. Um, you know, 410 Bridges graphic designer created our first website. Uh, their sponsorship person created our first sponsorship page and then handed it over to me to manage and grow. And it's just because Canopy Life for the first four years on the U.S. side was just me uh, when it came to staff. There's no way I could have accomplished all of that, especially not with my strengths and weaknesses. I would just never have um, been able to launch out the door that excellently without their support. And I just thought that was the most generous thing for them. Uh, to yeah, do. Yeah. It was such a gift. So uh, now did you yeah. have the name Canopy Life at that point whenever you were doing uh, this launch or when did that uh, come about? When did you I'm come up with that name? I'm trying to remember if the name, I believe the name came in the spring of 2014. It was a long okay. process because for years at that point, we had been talking about Daraja Leadership Academy. We knew after the 2012 uh, R&D that we didn't want to use the word leadership in the title. Mm -hmm. And that's because the word leadership has a very different connotation in Kenya. Um, it, it implies power that you often mm -hmm. use for yourself. It implies status mm -hmm. and not the kind of servant leadership that we would have intended yeah. for it. Um, but also Daraja had such a rich and deep meaning for me. It's the Swahili word for bridge and it, it represented a certain kind of culture that we mm -hmm. had developed in the choir over the years. So to find a name 
that represented that same kind of depth was really challenging. Yeah. I'll never forget like just spending hours on before Zoom was a thing. I would spend hours on Zoom with people in my dining room and we'd have like post-it notes up on the wall trying to figure <laughs> out what to call it. But it came from a Canopy Life uh, came from a couple different sources. Um, when the vision first came to me in 06, uh, my sister had this saying called Splendor Tree. And it was this idea after Isaiah 61 that, um, and they shall be a planting of the Lord for a display of his splendor. And it talks about mm. oaks of righteousness. And that scripture had meant a lot to me in my 03 trip to Kenya. And so I love this idea of a planting of the Lord, like this strong oak tree um, mm-hmm. for the display of his splendor. Um, but we knew we couldn't use that name because a lot of our Kenyans are Kikuyu and they switch their L's and their R's. So the word splendor tree would be just like a nightmare to produ- pronounce. They literally begged me, please do not use this name. Um, <laughs> but then, but we knew the other big image that came was this idea of what a tree means in Kenya. Um, so in Kenya, most, many areas are wooded, but a lot of it is kind of sparse savanna. And, and in those areas, there are seasonal streams that when the dry season comes, because there's no shade to protect, protect those streams, the streams dry up, and which means that year-round vegetation is very difficult. Um, there's kind of seasons of of lushness and then long seasons of sparseness because of the drought and rainy seasons. But while we had been doing the research and development, I had gone to this uh, children's home and they had decided that part of their disciplinary action for their kids would be whenever a kid got in trouble, they were going to give it a sap, the child a sapling and that their discipline was they had to water that three times a day for like months and months and months and months and months. Mm. until that area actually became this wooded canopy. The trees grew up tall enough that the, that the tops of the trees grew together and formed this shade, which meant that the seasonal stream running through their property became a year-round river that mm. allowed irrigation for constant. Literally, the, the uh, temperature of that area, uh, when you're on the equator, shade makes all the difference. Uh, there's not much humidity. So yeah, yeah. it's literally like, are you standing in the sun or are you standing in the shade? And it can drop the temperature by 10 or 20 degrees. And so it's literally cooler in that little valley than it is anywhere around. And it just drew this picture for me of what it means when you provide a safe, nurturing place for something to flourish. If our mm. school could become a canopy for our students where they could have this safe, nurturing place to thrive but then they themselves grow up into a canopy mm-hmm. where their people can find refuge in their leadership within, yeah, it's beautiful. within their community. Um, and then the life part came from the fact that we realized that this is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle we're putting them into at our school and it's a lifestyle they will have to maintain. It's not just a position of leadership. It's it's this rhythm of lifestyle. So that's where Canopy Life came from. Sorry for the long drawn out story, but it's very no, different great. reach to me. It has a lot of ties um, to this idea that we want our kids to become a refuge where other people can take shelter in their leadership when they, when they grow up. So yeah, it's a beautiful um, image. Yeah. So I guess that's when Canopy Life probably was officially documented in 2014. We spent a year or so fundraising and then launched the school in 2015. And it was in a small rented facility outside of or the edge of Nairobi. And then about two and a half years later, I think we have recorded this story. Mm-hmm. In 2017, we hit some really difficult times in that neighborhood. There was some corruption going on. A guy who secretly wanted to start his own schools and he started 
lobbing a lot of false accusations and just the way that things go down in Kenya, a lot of times uh, heads are knocked together and then questions are asked later. So for the safety of our kids, we moved them to another school until we could find a safer environment mm-hmm. to grow, which ended up leading to us launching our own campus in Coma Hill, Kenya, about 45 minutes east of Nairobi. Uh, and that campus opened in 2019. And so it's been a it's been a wild and amazing ride. And I'm so, I could never be more grateful. I never knew that this journey was going to be one of perseverance. Uh, I am a get it done fast and move on to the next thing kind of person. But both the fact that the dream itself had to percolate for almost nine years before we opened our doors, that we are five years in now and due to the campus issue and then due to COVID, we you know, you have 39 kids five years in, which is amazing, but also a lot less than I thought we would have five years in. Sure. But God has used that time to percolate the vision and values within the team. Um, there's definitely been huge periods of time where he's used the waiting and persevering and listening and, and letting him get us through difficult times to deepen the roots and the, and the donor base that has walked the story with us. I, I don't know many organizations our age or size that have had so many donors stick with them for so long. And part of that's because they walked through that nine-year period. They were listening to me as I will led the choir dream about this while they fell in love with Kenyan kids. You know, they were dreaming about this with me. Mm -hmm. And so they're just as richly invested, you know, as I am. And definitely not as young as I was when the story started, but um, have experienced so much of the richness of God's faithfulness through the perseverance of this story. What a cool story. And I uh, think about story often and the, the pieces of the journey uh, always include times of perseverance. Like there's no, there's no story without that. There's no journey without that. Uh, whether it has come or hasn't come yet, uh, it's such an important, critical, uh, the story doesn't exist without going through things like that. And I've been reminding myself of that this year as well. Uh, but that's, that's a, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the the journey. Do you have anything else on the journey or on the uh, Canopy Life that, that you wanted to share in this podcast? What is, what's a question you usually get uh, when somebody's asking you about uh, how Canopy Life came to be? I mean, the most often the questions I get are where the name come from, mm-hmm. why Kenya, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you get your kids? Um, and And I think that um, we've answered so many of those. I think the only thing I would want to end with is saying like, I think a lot of people think that um, being the founder, being the one that stuck with the story and didn't quit or the one who originally had the vision, I think people think that this is my story. (laughs) And the truth is that um, Abu and his wife, Grace, have been a part of the story from the very beginning. They were with Roger, right? Right. Like basically as co-founders. I mean, yes, I had a vision written in a journal before Abu started as the choir director of the choir, but he's now our campus pastor and spiritual director. He's been part of this journey from the beginning. Um, If his wife had not ever said, it is you, I don't know that Mm -hmm. I would have ever actually owned it if 410 Bridge hadn't championed the idea early on and enabled us to launch, I know that we wouldn't have been able to start with the excellence that my personality type requires to feel proud about the vision we're casting out there. And so many other people in the journey that, um, like one in particular uh, that you and I both knew was Angie Bevilacqua, who Mm. was one of my biggest champions of wanting me to not quit on the vision. And she ended up passing away the month we opened the school Mm. um, from cancer. And 
the connections that she made at the end of her life um, that are still benefiting and blessing Canopy Life to this day, the, the things that her journey planted into our story as far as contemplative practices and the value of prayer as a decision-making paradigm, um, the people uh, that have entered our journey because of her and, and even that just the whole network of people that walked through the Diraj years and launched the school with us. It's so, it's their story too. And I mm-hmm. think being founder, I get a lot of credit for the perseverance and story, but without every single one of those people, it wouldn't have been possible. And so that would be the one thing I'd want to walk away is the backstory. I mean, I get the chance, I get the privilege and honor of telling it mm-hmm. and most often having my name signed at the end of it. But there are literally hundreds of people without whom this story not even wouldn't be possible, but like would never have made it over the first hurdle. And, mm. um, and I love that. That's my favorite part. I hope I kind of wish everyone wrote their own life story book and had a canopy life chapter in it of the part of that story, you know, that this is their story as well, which is just brings me so much joy. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really cool distinction that I, uh, it is easy to think of Christy and canopy life as one and the same, but, yeah. uh, yeah, there's so many people uh, working right now, even as we're having the yeah. conversation to make this thing happen. Yeah. So, and I cool. think for anyone who's dreaming of their own story right now, that would be the, as a founder, I have to speak to those people. Yeah. And it would just say, I would just say, uh, your backstory isn't going to be our backstory. And yet there's probably going to be huge amounts of perseverance and a lot of counting the cost. And if you can get through both of those, if you can persevere and count the cost and realize that you still have uh, your soul intact, your family and relationships. And if you're creating a more loving community by continuing on the journey, then just please don't quit. Hmm. Um, Cause there were moments where I wasn't sure so many moments where I wasn't sure we were going to make it, but I still knew that God was creating a more loving me and a lo- more loving community as I leaned in. And that was the most important thing. So as long as I could keep those things, and still pursue the vision that I should, even though I wanted to quit. And so for anyone who's doing that, you're pursuing something, some dream, some vision, as long as you can still press in and you're becoming a more loving you and you're creating a more loving community, keep leaning in because most likely the other things will go away over time and you will have a good backstory to tell. All right. Thank you for listening to the Canopy Life podcast. As Christy mentioned, there are hundreds of uh, people that have been involved in this story of Canopy Life Academy. Some of you are listening. uh, And if you would like to write a chapter of your life uh, that involves Canopy Life, uh, you can learn more about the organization at canopylife.org. There's a get involved button or contact. You can get in contact with Christy, the team, uh, find out more about what it would mean to make Canopy Life a part of your family and, and become a part of Canopy Life's family. Sante sana, everybody.